Postcards from a Dying World, the podcast. For more than a decade, I've reviewed over 1,000 books that are mostly science fiction, horror, and bizarro. This feed will feature bonus audio I have produced over the years, as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what I've read each month, plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. I have a very special guest with us today, Alma Ketsu, who is the author of several Bram Stoker Award winning, nominated, I believe, both books. Of course, that puts us, puts her on our radar um, here at Postcards because, you know, we love award winning horror. But the book that I read of hers first and the one that really got my interest was Red Widow because of her personal experience and what she uh, brings to the spy thriller in a really interesting way, which we'll talk about later. But Alma, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me here. Right. And so now you grew up mostly in Massachusetts, according to my research. I, I'm always interested in how like the place people grow up, like kind of meld artists, because not everyone, everyone has, a lot of people have a novel that they want to write, but not everyone can sit down and actually do it or have the, um, the wherewithal to take the artist path and, and put themselves out there. So what about growing up mostly in Concord, Mass, uh, do you think added to the artist brew there? Well, you know, I used to, when my first book came out and, and subsequently I've often said, you know, I grew up in the spookiest town in New England, which is saying a lot, right? Right, right. Because <laughs> there's a lot of spooky towns. So I grew yeah. up in a little town called Maynard, which is right next door to Concord. I say Concord because that's where, you know, a lot of people are more familiar with, but it's a tiny, tiny little town. And we, uh, my family rolled in there when I was about seven years old in the dead of night. And it, it has like the most cemeteries per square mile, I think, of any town in, in America, probably. And it's an old town, too. So mm. it just was just so creepy. And there was a funeral home within one block in two directions from my house. And I grew up in a really creepy, really creepy Victorian that, you know, so that combination of things. For yeah, anything, I'm seeing where this is leading here. Yeah. yeah. But especially if you're a kid with an imagination, you know, you just, I just grew up like in this gothic nightmare. Well, and not only that, but just like the real sense of history that you bring to your work too, I think is probably informed by that kind of growing up in that environment, I imagine, right? Like the, so the history stuff. It's funny, you know, if you had asked me growing up, I never would have said, oh yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated by the colonial period or whatever, even though that's exactly where I grew up, right? Like surrounded, mm -hmm. all the houses around us were old, 250 years old and, you know, the, you know, battlefields and all this kind of stuff around you. But then after you write your first book and you look back on it and you realize all these things have seeped into your subconscious from, from growing up. And so, yeah, like my first book was set uh, you know, kind of spanned generations, but it starts out in post-colonial period. So yeah, I was able to draw on all those houses that I spent so much time in and, and all the things that, you know, that you just learned growing up around it. Well, I, I think that probably lads, or adds an, an authenticity because I think you probably have a feeling or a sense for those eras that maybe not everyone has. Like if you grow up 
for example, if you were to grow up here in San Diego, that's just not the vibe or the feeling you're going to get, right? You know, right? Or even down in Maryland, where I ended up moving when I first left the Boston area, mm-hmm. you know, I was even though there's a lot of history on it, it's more on the Eastern Shore. Um, and, but where I was, the more populated place, you know, they said things like most of the houses had been built within the last 20 years at that time, which to me was unthinkable because I had just right. been surrounded by these, yeah, you know, super well, old places. Yeah, no, that's really cool. And I think um, I, I think probably um, with the vibe or the energy and the things that, that you kind of found space to work with, uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. But you did study writing in, in, in college, right? And uh, I believe Brandeis University was, was where you studied writing. Um, yeah. Now, now, that's not where you went career-wise in the beginning, and we'll get to that. You had some pretty powerful teachers at, at Brandeis, according to my research. But uh, can you tell me about studying writing? Did you were you already locked in like this is something I'd like to do or something you wanted to do like at that young age? Yes. And, you know, so I'm a little on the older side. And so, you know, I grew up, of course, way pre-internet and all that kind of stuff. And I grew up in, uh, you know, Maynard is a pretty small town and, um, you know, I did not come from a very worldly family. So even though I, I loved reading, you know, like a lot of writers, we all started out as kids who just always have our noses in a book. And I think you kind of get that, you have that hope from an early age that, you know, maybe I'll be a writer one day. But I didn't really know how you go about being a novelist, right? Right. So I did, um, I did some writing. I actually did a lot of newspaper work when I was still a teenager, because that's what I could see. You know, how could you make a living being a writer? That's one of the few things that I could actually see. But I did major in, um, in writing when I went to Brandeis. They had just started the program then. I don't even know if they still have it. It was so long ago. And I was lucky enough to get into the, the, um, the seminar classes they had with visiting authors. So one was... Uh, Margaret Ray, who was one of the co-authors of the Curious George books. Not that I had any aspirations to write children's books, but, you know, she was the visiting writer. So, you know, I I tried to get get in the class with her. And then the one that really was just very inspirational was John Irving. He Mm. came, he was actually doing a, it was a seminar class between three universities So it's very competitive to get into. I have no flipping idea how I made it. My writing was so bad back then. But, um, (laughs) and I- probably better than you. Yeah, it was good enough to get you in there, right? I I, I don't know. I think the bar, (laughs) you know, most undergraduates are really terrible. But, um, you know, just, I barely even remember anything I learned in that class because you're just so starstruck, you know, just like sitting at the feet of the master. And um, Garp was just on paper back then. And, you know, he was just becoming a superstar. So it really was, it was crazy. You know, it was like taking singing lessons from Mick Jagger. It was just, (laughs) you know, and I thought, you know, this is it now I'm on the path. No, but it was nice while it lasted. Well, I think being able to see that writers are people too or that even like the big rock star writers are are just human beings who maybe need a bathroom break at some point and you know <laughs> it's just humanizing like these these major writers is always like a good thing for someone young trying to to, to learn about writing because 
for me, it was two things or one. And like my father, even though he was academic and he wrote nonfiction books that like I couldn't read, but my father was a political scientist and just seeing him put S plus chair equals writing, you know, and doing the work was really important for me. But then the very first time that I ever like had a conversation with a working writer at a, a signing and, you know, for me, like one of them was the, the only time I've ever been starstruck with a writer was really Richard Matheson. And <laughs> when I was able to go to, to three different events where I was able to meet him and, and stuff. And, and, and it was just like, but seeing that he was human, that he had kids and then he got annoyed with Harlan Ellison at one point during the thing, I was like, oh yeah, he's a human being. I got to ask you that. How old were you when that happens? Oh, I was older. I was in, I was like 30, 32, but it was still enough because for me with him, like when I was in eighth grade, he was the reason I discovered that writers existed because I was a big Twilight Zone Star Trek guy. And I saw his name on both those shows and just happened to be at a bookstore and saw his name on the spine of a book, which I still have behind me, which was oh. one of the short story collections. And I said, oh, wait, that guy writes for the Twilight Zone, right? And somebody does this. Somebody writes for these shows. Somebody makes up these stories. They don't just come out of thin blue air. So meeting him to me was like, he was the first name I recognized as a writer, even though like I already knew Stephen King, but I just, you know, he was an industry, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> Richard Matheson was, I don't know. Anyways, I'm babbling and, I, and I'm here to talk to you. So, that's okay. I mean, that's a great, that's a great event. I mean, I kind of wish in a way that I had had that class when I was a little older, because yeah. I would have appreciated and been able to get more out of it. I, I'm afraid I was just so starstruck at the time. And he fit the bill of what I thought a writer should be, right? He had that um, patrician accent, you know, he he was a total preppy. He never wore socks in his topsiders when he came to class. He always had his collar flipped up. He had that great hair, which he still has to this day. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and so he was like um, an icon in a certain way. And unfortunately, I just wasn't in a place where I could humanize him, you know. Mm -hmm. But now when I meet writers, of course, and the funny thing is, is I was a music critic at the time. So I was meeting bands and relatively famous musicians all the time and it just didn't have the same effect that he had on me it was so weird well it's funny you should mention that because i think one of the reasons why it took madison to starstruck start to starstruck me <laughs> as it were is because i grew up in punk rock and and the hardcore music scene and the the divide between the bands and the fans is nothing in that music scene so the bands i grew up listening to were the bands i was hanging out with so when I started meeting writers, it wasn't that big a deal. But the first one that really I was just like, oh, my God, he wrote I Am Legend. That that is Richard Madison. He wrote the thing on the wing of the plane. You know, that, <laughs> you know, that, that that guy. And that was like the first time that I ever really freaked out. So I think I was prepared by punk rock to not freak out about meeting people, even at a young age, you know. Yeah. So I had that early lesson. But, you know, still, I think. It was probably great for you to, if, in, if nothing else, like, I'm sure you drew on some of that writing training, even though it was many years before you, like, started taking writing seriously. Were you writing that whole time? Oh, yeah, yeah. you were. Yeah. So there's a lot of, of a lot of trunk novels out there, right? Um, well, man, I threw those away a long time ago. They were horrible. <laughs> the trunk they is were, gone. Yeah. Yeah. But one thing I did 
I remember being inspired by him is that, you know, when you read his work, you can tell he doesn't censor himself very much, right? Like he'll allow himself to take the story in pretty weird places that, you know, anyway. And so I did that when I was writing uh, in his class and I'll never forget there was one scene that was pretty out there and he did write, wow, in an exclamation point. <laughs> you know, in the margin, because it was just so bizarre anyway. Yeah. Hey, that's great. No, but that's probably a great feeling. They've kept, probably gave you confidence to keep going with. Uh, and that's a valuable lesson to learn from, like, you know, not everyone in that class probably sat there and said, hey, he's not censoring himself, that you had the eye as, as a writer inborn in you to, to catch that. And that's great. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. You know, um, Joe R. Lansdale has a famous, you know, writing one of whenever he gives writing advice, one of his famous pieces of writing advice is write like everyone you know is dead. So you can never, <laughs> never be embarrassed or ashamed because in your mind, everyone you know is dead. And I, I always thought that was great, <laughs> great advice. It but, is. It is. Yeah. So you started out in 2011 was your first like major publishing thing with the Taker trilogy. Was that your first real serious, like, like very serious attempt to, to get published? So, yeah, I mean, what I ended up going through, and this is, this is going to tie into what we're talking about later is um, at, at a certain point after I graduated, I decided to take a job with the intelligence community. And um, back then they really didn't like you writing on the outside or doing anything on the outside, even if it was totally disassociated from the work you're doing in intelligence. So I actually had to quit all my writing. I was writing for three magazines at the time on the DC music scene, and I had to give all that up. Ooh, that's hard. Number. Yeah, but I thought, you know, I, I've completely um, changed my life. I moved down to DC you know, I should give it a try. My original intention was not to stay in intelligence for very long. It wasn't like the thing I'd always wanted to do. I just got the opportunity to do it. And I ended up spending, having a whole career in it. But it wasn't until I was about 40, I got really sick. Um, and it wasn't clear whether or not I was going to be able to continue to work. And so I uh, in order to take my mind off of the troubles as we were going through all the tests and stuff, I started writing fiction again. And I, it just came back to me how much I enjoyed it. And it really took me out of my troubles. So once all that got back um, under control, I said, you know, I've always wanted to be able to write a novel. I certainly tried writing novels before and I, I knew at that point that they were garbage. So, um, you know, I had evolved at least that far <laughs> that I could mm -hmm. recognize a bad novel when I wrote it. But um, so I said, I'm going to learn to write a novel. And so not with the hope of ever getting published, but um, so I went to grad school at that point, uh, worked on my master's degree in, in fiction, and it took 10 years to write the book that became The Taker. And that is writing like every day. And I did work on other novels at, and kind of rotated in and out because The Taker was a very difficult book to write technically. And I just didn't have the chops, you know, to really know how to make it work. So it took 10 years, but, uh, and the book sold when I was 50. Right. And, um, but I can tell that you have a writer's ear. So working in a, in a field intelligence that's a really unique perspective for a writer. So I'm sure you had your ear 
to to you were thinking all the time as a storyteller correct like while you're there like you know i hate to yeah no not really not really I mean, I okay really put it out i really put it out of my mind i even really stopped reading a lot of fiction for a long period because my heart was broken too right i didn't have mm-hmm. success early i just thought well it's it's not for me you know the publishing industry was very different back then you know, I always thought I would be, I would write literary fiction. That's, mm. you know, where my my taste lay. That's where my training lay. There was much more of a market for literary fiction back then. But, you know, I was having a hard time breaking in. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I knew in hindsight, it's because I wasn't a very good writer. <laughs> I mean, I was young and I just didn't have the critical capability that I developed later. Now, that is something that did come out of the intelligence work, right? They... Beat you like an English boarding school to to bend you into shape and to um, develop the the critical thinking skills that you need in order to be an analyst. And so, you know, over time, I learned to be a better scholar too. Uh-huh. So I think all those things combined. By the time I was forty and I got myself back on track, I could understand what you know my instructors are trying to tell me. I could dissect the the books and short stories I was reading better and so then I could make real progress on my writing absolutely that's not false modesty that's the truth well no no and um but well I'm sure uh when we get to Red Widow uh the the years working there did probably uh pay off in a lot of ways but um (laughs) very directly applicable yeah very directly applicable but when Okay, so then came The Hunger, right? Um, after the trilogy, you did a whole trilogy of the Taker books. Were they designed as a trilogy or did you, or was it based on the first, the success of the first one? Yeah, I mean, when the, when the book came out, um, you know, trilogies, especially in that genre were very big. And mm-hmm. so the book was originally written to, as a standalone, but at the end of it, you know, my agents and editors were kind of saying, do you think, you know, what do you think? And I said, I absolutely can see a way to make this into a trilogy. Did I have a plan in mind? No, I did not. I could see <laughs> the second book, but I wasn't really sure where the third book would go. And, you know, as I'm sure everybody is, every writer you've had on the show has told you that second book is the hardest book you're ever going to write. It right. was crazy. I thought, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into? It, yeah, yeah, building on, building on the success is probably you know, super daunting and there, and you, you were nominated for some, uh, book list awards for. Oh, well, that book, yeah, that book was crazy. It got, um, book list named it one of the top 10 debut novels of the year. And it sold a lot of translation rights and it did much better overseas than mm-hmm. I think in the United States. Um, but for a debut, I can't complain. I mean, it, it did fairly well. Now but, you um, said, you said you were working on other books at the same time. Was that the hunger that you were working on no, or, no. or just, it was, you know, I had met agents and editors who thought I should be writing a spy novel. So I tried to write spy novels, but they weren't very good. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, we'll get back to that when we, when we get to Red Widow, because I, th- I think that's interesting that she had other attempts. Um, um, but as far as the hunger goes, like how, how did you get, um, interested in talking about the Donner Party. I mean, it's a very fascinating part of history, but, you know, it's a very specific thing to to go after uh, with a horror novel. And did you think of it as a horror novel or as a historical novel at first? 
You know, yeah, that's a great question. And I think the publisher didn't really see it as a horror novel either. We knew there was going to be a challenge because it's, it's sort of cross genre. Um, of course, there's the huge historical fiction component and it's a very character driven novel, but it has this, you know, this horror element to it, although it's not super pronounced. And I do think we were of course happy, but a little surprised when the horror community really embraced it and believe me I'm I'm very grateful for that but then sometimes you know you you hear from readers who are like this isn't a horror novel it's you know where's where's the horror it's not you know really visceral horror but it was never meant to be and so yeah all those books ended up that way um you know the Donner Party is such a fascinating story years ago when I was in graduate school I I wrote us I was in a screenwriting class and you have to write a short script and it had to do with cannibalism and so there and you know, and it wasn't about the Donner Party, but, you know, there was this reference. And so years later, when I thought, you know, maybe I should do something about the Donner Party. And then I learned a lot about it. That's when I realized, man, this has all the makings of a great story. You know, it just had so much drama, so much conflict, so much going on. It, it wasn't just about what happened when they were snowed in at the top of the mountain. It wasn't just about the cannibalism. It's everything else that led up to it. And then the other thing is, you know, it was written mostly in 2016, so during the presidential election, you know, I was a little worried that some of the zeitgeist of, you know, of what was going on at the time had leaked into the book. But, you know, looking at what was going on in the country at the time when the Donner, you know, when the uh, actual historical event happened, it, it was very reflective of what the country was going through at the time then too. So one of the things I've really learned about writing these historical horror novels is we really don't learn from history and we end mm. up, you know, especially as a nation, we just end up having to trod over the same ground over and over again. I just finished uh, um, the revisions on the next historical horror, which is gonna have to do with the internment, the Japanese internment during World War II. Mm. And, and this one, I really just flipped around. It really is supposed to be just sort of like a mirror, holding up a mirror to what we're going through now in the country, especially with all this anti-Asian hate uh, mm -hmm. going on as well as the nationalism. Oh, wow. Well, that the, the internment camps are something that I'm really fascinated with too. So you've, you've just uh, earned another reader um, right there on that one. Yeah, so what's really funny too is because when I've read a lot of the uh, reviews of of the hunger too is, and I'm I'm a person that believes in expanding the definition of horror. I hate when people say it's not a horror movie, um, and I get in arguments with people all the time about that. And it's very clearly a horror novel, and I think sometimes people want more actual monsters to be, but I think a lot of what you were building on is this idea that the feeling that the Donner Party was that they were like kind of like a drug addict that's always been feeling like they've got a monster at their toes like all the time, you know. Yeah. So if somebody says to me that's not horrific or that's not horror enough, it's like, well, you are not doing your job to put yourself in the shoes of the people in the story <laughs> because that is pretty horrifying and. Um, from the very first time I heard about 
the hunger, I thought to myself, man, what a, what a terrifying concept. And what's really cool now is you're getting a lot of comparisons with this novel to uh, Dan Simmons' The Terror. And it's becoming, which is a his views aside, that novel uh, and the whole historical horror thing is pretty good shoes to be uh, kind of connected with, I think. I, I am thrilled that people have said that. I mean, it's, it, it was the highest honor. I didn't read The Terror until after I had finished The Hunger and I loved it. I just uh-huh. loved it. So yeah, when I, I had heard those comparisons, I, that was just the highest form of, of flattery. It's a lot of fun writing the books, but it is a lot of work. Like the second book, The Deep, which has to do with the, the Titanic, you know, the reason that came about is because The Hunger um, did fairly well. So, you know, we kept getting these questions like, okay, what what great disaster in history are you going to write about next? And that's a pretty daunting question, actually. And it's going to sound terrible. But, you know, so I start looking at these disasters and it has to meet <laughs> right. certain criteria, right? Um, some of them, like the Hindenburg kept coming up. Well, sorry, none of people died. I mean, it wasn't big. It didn't change, um, you know flight. Actually, they used dirigibles for a a long time after that, you know, so it's got to have like certain criteria. Uh So the Titanic certainly met the mark, but it's one of those things that on one hand, um, you know, it has legions and legions of people who are just rabid Titanic fans. And it made me very nervous to try to take up a story, right, that has people like that, because you're never going to make them all happy. And um, they'll disagree with your interpretation of history, even when they're wrong. Uh, so, but, but in the end, I sort of swallowed my fears and went ahead and did it. That was a monumental piece of research. Yeah, well, we'll come back to that in a second. But with The Hunger, you got the honor of being on the NPR's 100 Favorite Horror Stories, which is a big deal, nominated for the Locust and Stoker Awards, which is also awesome. A blurb from Stephen King. Uh, <laughs> Like, um, so let's unpack a little bit of that because that's that's some fun stuff here. So, so, so let's let's allow you a victory lap here because that's pretty awesome stuff. Yeah, um, this is probably going to be the my best book. You know, I've I've already I've already accepted that. It's really going to be hard to top just in terms of like you said experiences, right? Well, but, Stephen um, King's still chasing the stand. So, like you know, all these years later. But go ahead. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, we didn't expect the Stephen King blurb. I mean, it hadn't been solicited or anything. They sent a book to him, you know, they they send books out hoping that certain authors might, you know, say something nice. And I was out on book tour when that happened. Mm-hmm. And um, I was about to walk into an event when, you know, my cell phone went crazy. And it seemed like every person on the planet was trying to text me or phone me uh, to tell me Stephen King had just blurred my book. And and that whole, that lasted for 24 hours, like crazy amounts of texting and uh, and retweeting and all that kind of stuff. It just, um, it's a hard thing to um, convey what that feels like to have that wave of attention hits you and to think he lives that every day every flipping day yeah uh, phenomenal well adrian walker who wrote the um end of the world running club yeah. uh, i had him on and he stephen king got his book at the airport in toronto just picked it up read it on the plane to wherever he was flying and then tweeted about it when he got off the plane like just 
That's it. Just I oh, I just picked up this book and read it. And his whole life changed basically because Stephen King happened to grab his book at the airport. Life changing. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really it's really crazy to think that like, but you know, he's the world's greatest selling author. So if it doesn't seem solicited, if it's just off the, you know, like if it just comes out, like you can tell the difference with those and his blurbing of your book didn't come off that way either. So it was like, right then I take it like to mean a little bit more like like all right now I got to go check that out because he's really taking his time to do that so I'm sure it was just a huge deal and so you were on tour huh okay that yeah. makes sense yeah it was crazy yeah it's such a gift such a gift and you know I'll always be grateful for that unfortunately you want to you want that high every time <laughs> you right. that's a little that's a little disappointing but um <laughs> well but it had to mean something too because him of all people like you know recognizing i'm sure all of you writers that get blurred by him like have it memorized and know exactly like yes this is what he said and, <laughs> you know it's because it's so fun yeah. to get that kind of acknowledgement but so the deep you you're doing the, the historical horror uh thing again and it makes sense to go back to that because you had such success with the hunger it's really cool is to see you come up with such a really cool concept and, and go after it. But as you said, the Titanic, there's more like Titanic nerds out there than there are Donner Party nerds. So <laughs> you can fudge a little bit with the Donner Party, right? But with but you're going to get people pushing up their glasses for, you know, and telling you you're wrong on the Titanic a bit more probably, right? So I'm sure the research was very intense. Yes. And also just the fact that there's so much more material. So while there's certainly, you know, a fair amount of material for the Donner Party, for the Titanic, it was exponentially larger. Plus the event itself, you know, was just so much larger. So with the Donner Party, you know, you had roughly 100 people in the party. And, you know, I call it complex research because, or, or for a book in particular, because it's very specific. It's tied to specific place and specific timeline. So that you know, creates this, this, you know, the boundaries of the research that you're going to do. And um, we, and I don't know how much you want to go into all of that. You know, that's basically what I did for many, many years. I was a research analyst. And so I take all this very seriously, but I've done it for so long that it, it's probably not as daunting to me as it might be to people who don't do it right on an everyday basis. Uh -huh. So large research projects don't generally phase me. I've done huge ones, multi-million dollar research projects with teams of running teams of researchers. I worked at the Rand, you know, corporation and, and did big research problems. But I did uh, kind of stop and think if I wanted to do the Titanic. But like I said, the very reason that you brought up, um, you know, and it's so funny. I don't know if you saw this a little while ago. There was a, a, a writer whose tweet went a little viral when he said, um, he tweeted back some complaint that a writer had tweeted. I mean, a reader had tweeted saying that they he didn't find the guy's vampire novel to be very factual or something like that. And right. he's like, what did you expect? And that's exactly what I feel sometimes. I mean, we're very upfront. These are reimaginings with horror elements and yet I will still get people getting very upset because it deviates from the history. 
Mm-hmm. What did you expect? If you don't want fiction, don't read fiction. Um, right. But yeah, so there's certain large swaths of uh, Titanic fans who won't read my book and who can be very disparaging, but that's not who it was intended for. So, um, but, you know, both The Hunger and The Deep are, you know, they sort of fall out of some norms that people like historical fiction readers might expect or, or horror readers might expect. So I really hope to find the audience that's sort of the sweet spot that's looking for something that's a little imaginative that maybe isn't what you would have expected. And, you know, I'm, I'm sorry if other readers get disappointed, but, you know. Um, so yeah, it was a lot of research. Um, you know, there were what, about 2,300 people on the Titanic of whom 1,500 died. I mean, that's a lot of just going through the cast of people, right? Passengers and crew and understanding, getting a sense of, you know, what were they representing? What, what you know, what were the themes of the time and all that kind of stuff, picking out the right people in history that you want to use as characters in the book. I mean, that alone. But then again, you have the same thing that The Hunger had, which is a very specific geographic <laughs> route and very specific timeline. So time and place tied with you know thousands of characters to sort of juggle. It was a very daunting uh, research task, but but I did it, and I'll never do it again. <laughs> <laughs> Not with that topic, but. I'm sure you probably have a, a, a mental file folder full of uh, historical events you might someday tackle. But I don't uh... know. I don't know. <laughs> this the the one that I just finished is um it's it's another historical horror, but it's very different in that it's almost all made up. It's mm-hmm. not tied. It it does have two specific historical events that are are sort of the kickoff for it but I did not adhere to the timeline for the events at all. It just, yeah. I couldn't make the story work, the story that I was trying to tell. And so I'm very explicit in the afterward, you know, yeah. don't, don't take your history test by this book because you will fail. Um. <laughs> <laughs> right, so now with Red Widow, this was a departure for you I, I, from what you're expecting, what, what publishing a lot of times they expect you to do the same kind of thing all over again. And, and uh, writers of course, resist this idea. And, and um, for me, one of the reasons why, like I was really interested to read Red Widow is because I like when authors can take their experience and turn it into something that nobody else could write because they have a very specific, you know, knowledge or point of view that they bring to things. Right. That's, that's a very specific thing that, this reader likes and so with red widow the fact that you worked as an intelligence analyst for the cia for a long time um when i when i saw that this book was coming i was like whoa okay yeah now i'm really interested i also like like style like uh, spy thrillers that are not uh built on shootouts and and uh, you know those kinds of things so but what's funny is I haven't read one in a long time. So uh, it was it was refreshing to, to read in that sense. Now, one thing that I thought was hilarious, and this goes back to what you were just saying, is that two, I read two reviews by like spy book readers who 
just made me roll my eyes because they said well that's not how spies act right and they were like you know saying like i didn't enjoy this book because that's not how spies act and i thought to myself well it's a good thing these guys who've read a bunch of robert ludlum novels can tell alma how spies act right and i hammered this in my review of the book because it's just um I think this person was forgetting that you're writing about human beings who happen to be in, in, in this field and they're thinking about characters in movies probably. So, but you, you did work in this field. So how did that end up happening? Like you went to school for writing and you ended up being a researcher for, for the CIA. How did that happen? And this leads into Red Widow. <laughs> sure. So, I'm, I ended up taking a job, not with CIA at first, I went to NSA. Mm -hmm. And this was a long time ago. So NSA at the time, you know, the world wasn't producing enough electrical engineers and computer scientists for them to hire. So they, at the time, they would test you for aptitude to see if you had the aptitude to do the kinds of things they needed because they, they need very specific skills. And luckily I tested very well. And I only took the test because I had heard it was such a unique experience. Mm -hmm. um, and it was, but, um, and then I thought, well, I'll go and just for the experience, just to see what it's like. Also, it was a chance to move away from the Boston area. And it wasn't that I enjoyed it so much. It was really tough transition, but at the time, um, you know, I thought I'd do it for a while. And then, then, uh, you know, it, it's, it really is a career like, like no other. So I was at NSA for a very long time. And then at 9-11, um, at that point, I was a national intelligence officer, which is a pretty senior analyst <laughs> position. Mm -hmm. And because I was an expert in my field, after 9-11, I was brought downtown to do policy work for a couple of years, uh, including at the Office of the Secretary of Defense. And at the end of that, um, well, I didn't want to go back to the Defense Department because I was very upset with some of the things they were doing. And so um, a friend at CIA said, we want you to come and work for us because uh, in my field, I was pretty well regarded. So I did. And I, I was a senior analyst for them for a long time. But then I ended up transitioning over to emerging technologies work. When you work at NSA, even if you're not in a technical field, chances are you're going to have to learn a lot about telecommunications and computer science and mm -hmm. you end up being technical. And um, so I, I ended up going back to technical work when I went to, for the last 10 years or so of my career. So, um, so that's how all that worked. Uh, it's a fascinating career. It's, it's certainly work you can't do anywhere else. But by that time I had had, as I was getting close to retirement, I had written four books or so, I think, and uh, I was talking to my editor at Putnam, Sally uh, Kim, who's wonderful. And she was telling me at the time how much she was regretting the fact that the Americans was gonna be going off the air, it was going into its last season. And she said, I really wish I could find a book that was like that, that had the espionage and that was very true to life, but also had that sort of, you know, domestic component where you could see into the spies' lives. And she said, do you, you know, not in so many words, do you think you could write that? But I said, give me a week and I'll get your proposal. Cause I'd always wanted to write a spy book. But by that point in my career, you know, I understood the intelligence business and I felt like there was a lot of things I wanted to say about it that I didn't see in other, um, in most uh, contemporary 
spy novels. And that is really the toll it takes on people. I mean, LeCarré does a really good job and a few other writers do, but most of them don't really understand. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's very complicated anyway. Um, and the other thing was I really wanted to see one where the main characters were women because especially with contemporary spy novels, not historicals, but contemporaries, you just don't see a lot of women main characters. And when you do, the book usually doesn't do well. <laughs> and I'm not saying the ones that exist weren't well-written, but it's a challenge. It's, you know, the, the perception is that most spy readers are men. And the fact is, is a lot of men will not read a book written by a woman. So, you know, it or was they'll a bit tell of a, you how spies think when they have no well, knowledge of it. <laughs> I'm so glad I didn't read those reviews because they would make me mad. But so I'll just say this to those people. They make me mad. <laughs> um, almost as soon as the book came out, I started getting emails um, from people in the business telling me that it is the most accurate cultural representation of CIA they've ever seen. And I awesome. have them over and over. I've been doing a lot of blurbs on graphics and stuff. Um, Valerie Plain just gave me a blurb. I mean, oh, she awesome. loved it. Yeah. So yeah, those people can just stick their head in a pot of water. Yeah, totally. Well, no, I was mad for you when I read that. That's one of the reasons <laughs> why you. I went after it in my review. But um, it seems like a huge part of the theme of Red Widow is humanizing the people that work behind the scenes and i would imagine in in intelligence analyzm <laughs> i guess i would say there's probably a lot more women who um have the patience to do that kind of work that you know um not to insult my half of the human species too much but i do think that the ability to be patient about you know research and doing the, these things kind of gives um an advantage to women. So I think setting a novel about analysts and, and all that stuff, uh, it just makes sense. But it seems like humanizing these characters was a huge part of the mission. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. Because, um, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to make anybody upset. It's not that I see this as a men versus women kind of thing. But I just do think that women maybe have a slightly different perspective um, mm. in the work. Um, and it's based on, I think, what a lot of women have experienced in the workplace. You know, there is just, in a lot of cases, this bias against women. Now, I could tell you many stories <laughs> that would curl your hair. I have told them on other programs, and people have been just flabbergasted. By the time I left intelligence, I wasn't like in the super senior ranks, but I was an office director. Mm-hmm. That meant I had hundreds of people working for me, right? I, I ran a very big program. And the things that still happened to me then of sexism would just, it just is jaw dropping. And, um, and that's what women had to go up against every day. So, you know, I'm here to tell you some of the best officers I worked with were women. Some of the best bosses I had were women. That's not to say I didn't have great male colleagues and have some great mm-hmm. male bosses, but it just women had to be just a little extra careful, um, you know, about how they, like mostly men did crazy ass rogue bad things, right? Women just had to think twice because they were more likely to be held accountable Mm -hmm. for 
a mistake or bad behavior or something like that. Now, what shocks some people and might shock those reviewers you were talking about is that the story behind Red Widow is actually a true story. It's based on a true story. It was changed quite a bit, so you'd never recognize it, but it was actually something that was in the news. It was just never publicly associated with CIA. And I don't wanna give away a spoiler in the book, but the bad person in the book- Well, we'll get to, we'll, we'll do okay. spoilers in a little bit. Oh, okay. Yeah, and, and but what I will say is that what you're talking about, you can see very clearly in both Lindsay Duncan and Teresa Warner, the two main characters of the book, everything that you're talking about is specifically with Lindsay and her affair in Lebanon and Teresa's motivations too, which we'll get to in spoilers, but you express this very, very, very well. Now seeing what's behind the scenes of what's doing it. Um, it yeah. I'm very impressed by it. Oh, thank <laughs> but, you. Uh, and so in crafting those two characters and the two main characters uh, was, you know, I'm sure like a huge part of, how you approach the novel from the beginning, like Teresa and Lindsay, were, was a lot of the spine of writing this on, on their backs? I, it just seems to me like it would be. But. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how other writers feel. For me, the protagonist is always such a challenge because they're the good guy. And I really love writing bad guys. So trying to come up with a good guy who's gonna be interesting enough to sustain my interest, but then also sustain a series. To me, that's always such a huge challenge. So Lindsay is very much drawn from many, many, many of the young women that I worked with, uh, especially at CIA. And I also had the opportunity to spend a year as a recruiter uh, for CIA for the analytic corps. And so I was going out to, you know, and I had the Northeast. So I had like Yale, Harvard, Brown, you know, all of those mm. schools. So the quintessential, you know, applicant for CIA, right? So I got yeah. to meet all these young women over and over again. And so that's who Lindsay's patterned after. These very smart, very driven women who, who know what they want or think they know what they want. And their heart is in the right place. They want to do the right thing. They want to, you know, they're very patriotic. They want to be there for their country. And someone like me, who's already had 30 years in, looks at them and, you know, I admire them so much, but I know what's what's in store for them, right? Mm -hmm. They're going to have their heart broken at some point by the agency. You know, it's it, like any career at any organization, right? Mm -hmm. It's not always going to go your way every single time. But it's um, it can be a little heartbreaking, and then that takes us to the Teresa character, who was sort of a golden girl. Um, she has her downfall. It's not really her fault. Her husband, you know, ends up being involved in a terrible clusterfuck um, operation that goes wrong, and you know, by extension, you know, she's going to suffer for the failure as well. So she, you know, has this sort of falling down, and then what's at the heart of the book is, is that you, you, you know, the agencies expect a lot from the people who work for them. You have to give them complete candor. There is no part of your life that can be held secret from them. That's part of having a security clearance. They have to have insight into every aspect of their life. So they know that you're not a spy. You're not, you know, doing something that you're not supposed to be doing that you can be trusted, but it, that, that's not reciprocal. You know, mm. you can't know everything that the other 
that the agency is doing and you, but you have to trust them completely. And so when you get stabbed in the back, which happens to people, mm. you know, it's devastating. It is absolutely devastating. And that's one of the things I wanted to show. Yeah. And, and I think that whole like double standard of like, you have to be, you have to be totally honest with us and is, is very evident in every page of, of this novel. And that's one of the things that yeah, if you're looking for, listen, if people are looking for a gunfight novel or or whatever, like this is not it. But if you're looking for a spy novel that kind of like the whole thing we were talking about, the definition of horror, right? This is a thriller if you put yourself in the shoes of the characters for sure, because a, a, a lot of it, this is for people, the way I would pitch it is this is for people who like, for example, that much of the suspense and in inglorious bastards is driven by the conversations that people are having yeah. and, and the mechanics behind the scene. And I think a lot of what really worked for me with red widow was that a lot of the mechanics and the things that drive the story um, are things that are relatable. If you put yourself in the shoes of the characters of, you know, this is my job, this is my family. And now I have to think about, you know what my actions are are, are causing are, are causing and and how it's now we're going to get into spoilers in just a minute i'll give a spoiler <laughs> warning and then we'll go full bore into the writing of this but just to to wrap up non-spoiler stuff i, I guess how, how do you because i pitched red widow if somebody asked me i'm going to say that it's um a, a kind of more realistic spy thriller based on that that seems to be based on real life experience and, and it sounds like that you're saying that this is actually a case that that you know about but you tried before to write a spy novel so you know what is it about red widow that made it the one that you wanted to write so the earlier ones um you know when i met with agents and editors they all said you know we want you to write us a book that shows what it's really like right doing the job and I took them at their word. And so that's what I tried to write. Uh, and at the time, you know, I said I was a national intelligence officer. One of the things I covered were genocides and mass atrocities, which back in the 1990s was pretty much, you know, the, the front page of the newspaper every day. Okay, right? the hunger is making more and more sense all the time. <laughs> right, right. Wow, so, um, that, that's something to, that you have to go into work and clock in and deal with all day long, right? So yeah, it, that's intense. It was, it yeah. was very intense, but um, I thought that there were great stories that could have been told uh, from that perspective. And so that's what I tried to do, but I made it too much like everyday life. You know, the spy business is not, um, you know, people running around with guns and, and you know, uh, as a matter of fact, you know, what, what, you know, the typical thriller in this genre supposed to be about you know the lone hero nobody else can do it but him uh you know oftentimes a reluctant hero doesn't want to do it but oh you know he's forced into doing it and it builds up to you know chasing a bad guy down and having a fist fight and grabbing the bomb and throwing it out the window and averting disaster at the last moment and in real life that's what we would call an intelligence failure that is not intelligence work intelligence work is seeing the long picture and nudging and tweaking the circumstances so that you don't get to that disaster. And it's almost never 
dependent on an individual. This is teams of people. That's why you get to go home at the end of the day. Somebody else takes over the shift. You know what I mean? But yeah. that's not a compelling story. And so that's why my earlier books did not did not succeed. But by the time Sally sat down and said, you know, I think this would make a great, this kind of thing would be great if you want to try it. It was because by then I understood what it takes to make a compelling story. Mm. You know, the characters, what the characters have to be like, what the plot has to be like, you know, the um, peaks and valleys of, of conflict and all that. So the, the challenge was marrying how to keep it true to life while still coming up with a story that's gonna be compelling enough for modern audiences and won't be too jarring uh, for people who like, you know, their Jason Bournes and their, um, their James Bonds. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, to, to me, the key to storytelling and anyone who listens to my podcast has heard me say this a million times, but I love parallels and reversals. Parallels and reversals drive stories. And you don't need a gun battle to have parallels and reversals. You don't need to have, you can have those things happen in in other shocking ways. And um, but I mean, hey, this book does start with someone being poisoned at the beginning. So, so let's... you know, what happened was that it just happened in real life, right yeah. around the time the, I broke the, the book. Lonnie, and so it yeah. was really for in my mind. Yeah. 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 True. True. And uh, you know, Russia's not. Um, shy about poisoning it's it's opposition no no, not at all all right so uh uh people should go out and get uh red widow the hunger Uh, you know i'm i'm gonna work my way back through some of the catalog too i really appreciate being able to talk about those books too because it sounds your experience with that is really uh, really helpful, I think, for people. But uh, we're going to get into spoilers with Red Widow. So if you haven't read Red Widow yet, um, pause the podcast. We'll be here. Uh, go read it and come back. And um, I'm going to just keep Alma around for a few more minutes to dive into the actual writing of this. So we're in spoilers now. If you've made it this far, then you already know that Teresa had to save her husband, Richard, <laughs> from... Uh, basically being betrayed by the CIA because he, well, he messed up a mission and they couldn't bail him out basically is what started the whole thing. And then they lied to his wife, Teresa, who's one of the main characters and told her that he was dead. And um, I'm, I'd imagine that this has happened more than once (laughs) over the years. Um, But it was really interesting to, because when I started looking at how the story, now I have to ask the question, are you a pantser or a planner? It sounds like you're a planner being the analyst. Oh, yeah. The yeah, yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> See, we're on the same boat there because I am a lifelong outliner religiously. And every once in a while, I'll say to myself, well, this book had to be outlined. And then the author will say no. But um, wow. yeah, I couldn't imagine going in without at least a, a skeleton or a plan, a map. And it seems like, so crafting the betrayals in this book are the key, right? So when and where this information is doled out between everything basically in this book comes between Lindsay and Teresa, right? So when I said earlier that they're the spine of the book, did you, now that we're in spoilers, building the book off those two characters, did you 
have both of them fully in mind when you started crafting the story and did you build it out from them yes but let me back up a little bit so um sometimes when i'm doing a book i will think of another book that i want to use as a model not necessarily the plot but something about how the narrative was structured that I think would be useful. So for instance, my next book, Red London, is actually built on the night manager, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. Um, But this book, I wanted to use Gone Girl, actually, Mm -hmm. as the model. And, you know, after the first section, when the second character takes over the narration, I don't know if you've read Gone Girl, but Mm -hmm. there is this huge, right, like just, upheaval of the whole story and then it goes from there and so I knew that's what I wanted that you know you'd have this you'd have Lindsay's point of view and then when Teresa's point of view came in you would find you know this huge revelation Mm. but actually I'm sorry no and it works too because the revelation once it changes the whole book but you know I didn't see it coming so you know that shift is you know And it's a reversal right there because it reverses what you're thinking about Teresa from the beginning. Yeah. So what the problem was though is, um, you know, in a traditional book, you don't want that revelation, uh, Teresa's voice, the point of view to come in until as late as you possibly can have it in the book, right? Mm -hmm. So I kept struggling with um, uh, the people who were reading it, I'll just say it, my my agent. Mm-hmm. who really loves spy thrillers, but he he really wanted it structured like a more traditional spy thriller. So in order to get it through him, um, I, I wrote it that way. And to me, it just wasn't working. If you mm-hmm. read the book, you'll see there's, it's like the world's most complex Jenga puzzle, right? And mm-hmm. so when you change one thing, you've got to change a hundred things behind it and a hundred things in front of it. And so I, you know, I just kept beating my head against the wall, trying to make this work using the, that structure, pushing the revelation as far back as possible. I said, it just doesn't work. And the other thing is, is Teresa's voice to me was just so dynamic that I thought it was a shame to hold it off for until so long in the book. So I fought back and I ended up bringing it much more forward. And then you had the opportunity for more of this cat and mouse between Lindsay and Teresa. But that book, just that part of it was rewritten at least four times with like 200 little changes every time. It it took an extra year (laughs) just trying to get to that point. Yeah. Yeah. It was very hard. The attention to detail is there. And, and, and I, I think what's really great about that is that once you have, once you set up the cat and mouse, like the revert, the parallel part of the storytelling, right? Because now the reader knows what Teresa's up to. And so we're watching Lindsay kind of come to this. And I think one of the things you did smartly in setting up in her character was Lindsay's reputation for, for being able to see through people and, and kind of be like human lie detector is that, um, we know she's kind of fooling herself to not to not see what Teresa's is doing right and yeah. she doesn't want to believe right yeah. and i thought that that was um a really smart storytelling choice is that um is that you know Lindsay doesn't 
partially because, and then again, this is smart storytelling. She, uh, with her situation in Lebanon, where um, she was involved in a, well, we're in spoiler section, so people have read it. So because of her affair in, in Lebanon, you know, she doesn't want to go after another woman, like just, you know, how she got raked over the coals in a way, because the man involved from MI6 that she was in a relationship with didn't have to deal with nearly the, the judgment that she went through, right? Right, right. And so in that sense, um, her unwillingness to believe that Teresa was betraying the country uh, was so smartly set up with um because and it's funny because you know i'm the i i wouldn't be reading my reviews this closely either um for my books but it i did see one or two people not getting that uh, <laughs> that um lindsay's experience in lebanon was 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 feeding was feeding why she was afraid to confront Teresa. Huh. <laughs> And I was like, what? How can you not get that? It's so right there. Yeah. um, But I thought you, personally, I I thought that worked really, really well. Um, And uh, so that's what you were talking about earlier about the experience that women have with sexism in the intelligence field, right? I mean. Oh, sure. I mean, I know plenty of people who, you know, they get called up for something. It's just easier, right? For a woman often to be called to the task for some slight, you know, deviation that men wouldn't be. Or, I mean, I was telling somebody, um, every time I've heard a story of, it just surprised me. It's a guy, you know, in an elevated position who just does some dumbass thing that no woman would ever do because they know that it would come back to haunt them. But, mm. you know, and a lot of it's like really petty, stupid stuff. But you do hear stories of case officers, chief of, chiefs of station having affairs with the wives of other foreign service officers or having an affair with another, you know, with liaison officer or something. And, you know, they're just gambling that it's not going to be an issue for them. But a woman knows that, yeah, they're probably going to be called on it. So, mm. yep. yeah. Yeah. A very typical example. <laughs> Right. And so crafting these two characters and to me, I I have a lot of, I have a lot of spoiler questions about these two women because I think that they drive everything in this book. And I think that that's, that's what um, makes it really compelling. But uh, at the same time, you have um, the one twist that I think would be really difficult and, and which is their is um, Lindsay's director at the CIA who, um, you know, has a bit of a mustache twirly kind of plan as far as, you know, and, and, and um, I'm brain farting his name right now, but, um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) this character, um, because he's the one that brings Lindsay in, right? Um, he believes in her and I think that that was an important narrative choice because that instantly because we're rooting for Lindsay because she's the character that we're seeing so much of the book through we trust this guy and we want to believe that he has our our point of view in the best interest right thought that was a really smart 
decision, but crafting that betrayal at the end. Um, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm imagining that that's one that you, you had in your mind from the very beginning, right? Like that's not. Well, originally he, you know, it's amazing how many changes the book can go through, you know, as you, the first draft you write, you know, or as you're writing the first draft, the characters aren't, they haven't revealed themselves fully to you, right? But by the time you, you write the third draft or something, you really understand them and their motivations better. So Eric is based on a true person. He's the guy that I worked for who did a terrible thing and, and somebody ended up dying for it. Uh, you know, and I, of course I can't go into any of the details, but he did it uh, for his ego basically. And, and that's, you know, uh, sad but true, but part of the challenge of being at CIA is, you know, they feed your head with, you know, you're the best and the brightest and blah, blah, blah. And eventually some people really come to believe that. And then especially as they work their way up the chain and they, especially if they make it into senior management, sometimes they just believe their own press a little bit too much. They've drunk their own Kool-Aid and they will do what a more level-headed person might see as sort of a ridiculous thing and for what purpose, right? So um, Eric is, uh, he's a, a, the director of Russia division, which is a fairly senior position, but because he was involved in the fiasco clusterfuck thing that ended up getting Richard Warner thrown in a Russian prison with, you know, mm. a cover pulled over it, you know, now he's in disgrace. He's never gonna, gonna get any higher at CIA. And so he devises the scheme to, um, to be the Bring hero. Him at, I'm sorry? To be the hero, basically. Um, or am I I'm reading? Sorry. He was, this, his scheme was to be the hero, right? And like. Right, he was going to make himself the hero. Yeah. So he devised this very complicated plot to lure what is basically CIA's most wanted uh, a Russian intelligence officer who had had a uh, chief of station murdered in cold blood and then withdrew behind, in Russia so they couldn't get to him. And so he figured out this way to draw the man out. And so he's sort of the puppet master. And, you know, um, Lindsay's one of his puppets and Teresa's one of his puppets, but he's having this whole chess game just so that he can catch this guy and then that'll redeem him and he'll be able to, to attain even higher status. And one of the jobs he wants is to be the senior director at the National Security Council, senior director for Russian affairs. And so um, originally, Eric was a little bit more out there in the story. But as you know, I started moving things around um, because again, that reveal of Teresa happened so early in the book and now publishers, audiences, readers are really conditioned to have a big twist at the end mm. that you know, I needed a bigger twist at the end. And so I had to really try to hide Eric's tracks throughout the most of the novel so that the reveal came at the end. And it's very, very subtle at the end, but one of the motivations too was that he had, he had always been in love with Teresa, but Teresa chose Richard. And so, you know, he was kind of getting back at her <laughs> for not chasing him, but also you kind of see that he was still carrying a little bit of a, a torch for her. So, you know, I try to write very, very character-driven books, you know, where the characters are, completely whole and round with a lot of, um, you know, so that you can understand their motivations and all that. I really can, I don't like 
um, two-dimensional characters. Yeah, and I think for the the people who read a more traditional spy novel and say like, this isn't how spies act. I think a lot of it is that in, in a lot of ways, Red Widow is like a chess game, <laughs> right? Like where it's going on. And if you've never played chess before, and like there's two ways to, to watch a chess game if you've never watched chess before, which is ask questions, think about it and be like, oh wait, how does chess work? Or it's just the people that just go, I don't get it, it's stupid. <laughs> like, you know, and, and I think what was going on with this betrayal that happens at the end is, yeah, it seems complicated, but this, this guy is setting up chess pieces all over the globe for for to do something so yeah it's complicated but yeah. he's dealing with complicated issues and thank you i i drew on a couple of real life things one is um um what's his name amir kazi who um had shot some cia officers right out in front of langley 20 25 years ago more than that because i was a young officer and i had to drive right by that spot not long after it happened but for a while i had the opportunity to work alongside some of the historians who a few years ago did a retrospective and really did a deep dive into into um how they finally were able to bring him to justice and that really gave me a lot of insights it, as to the lengths that CIA will go, a lot of the story never made it, you know, into the newspapers and that kind of stuff. They worked very hard for decades to bring that guy down, right? And so that's what gave me the idea for the, you know, um, Eric trying to trap Mazarov and lure him out of Russia so that they could finally get him. You know, that was absolutely based on something that I knew happened and, and they would do again, right? So that, that wasn't far-fetched. And the other thing had to do with, um, um, you know, moles and traitors. That's probably one of the most devastating things that officers go through. Now, while I never um, was involved in a case like that, Aldra James or anything like that, I knew people who did work with Aldra James. And, you know, the stories they tell, it is absolutely devastating to be betrayed by a fellow officer like that. For a lot of the dynamics that you see in Red Widow are absolutely true. You know, you're not supposed to discuss cases that are compartmentalized and you don't have access to, but we do. We do talk, I mean, maybe not in great specificity. And that's how Aldra James found out the things he did. He's socially engineered, you know, leaning on friendship and camaraderie and making people feel it's okay for you to tell me these secrets right and they absolutely betrayed him and so I wanted to capture that too I mean this is what Teresa's doing she's um you know she's trying her hardest not to give the Russians anything that's going to be of great consequence she's trying just to give them enough so that they'll let her husband go but you know she's socially engineering the other officers there so she can figure out you know information on assets to give to the Russians mm, yeah it's very powerful stuff. So um, any last challenges that you didn't foresee coming when you started this book that maybe we haven't discussed already? Well, the one thing that uh, was always in the back of my mind and your average listener out there isn't gonna run into this is that it also had to go through pre-publication review with CIA. So I was setting up this very complex thing that was hinting at a lot of tradecraft and all that, but I had to get it through, right? I couldn't have them tell me I had to pull out anything that was 
key or pivotal, you know, that the story rested on, because then I'd have to think of another way to write it. So I really <laughs> sweated that. But at the end, mm. when it went through um, review, they didn't ask for one change. So yeah, I really lucked out. Really? There. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's impressive. That, that's really impressive. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that was a very nerve wracking experience for a writer to hand it in for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, but I'm sure too for them, it's nerve wracking. Like uh, this writer used to work for us and what is she gonna say? So, you know, yeah. One of the things I found is, you know, cause I'd done those earlier books and they had to go through pre-publication review. And some of the things they wanted taken out were like the most mundane, you know, completely innocuous things. And so I, what I saw was that the pendulum swings, sometimes they're extremely tight and they don't want anything to go through. And other times, you know, maybe I'll say they're more realistic and mm. as to what they're able to let through. And, you know, um, since- so You've got them on a out, good day. <laughs> got them on a good day. But I think uh, there's also been a lot more books, even novels written by former CIA people. And that might be sort of changing their approach a little bit. I was asked to read a book by another former CIA analyst uh, to blurb, and I was amazed at what they allowed in that book. So now I'm scot-free. I mean, <laughs> it seems like they'll let anything through. So, uh, so part two is going to be really intense, huh? Um, well, actually, the next book, Red London, is actually a lot more action-based. Yeah. It's less analytical. And is yeah. is... Lindsay back or we uh oh great yeah because I got the feeling that you were planting seeds for for a wider character thing because there were there were little bits and pieces of her like her human lie detector stuff that we we just saw little bits and pieces of that I feel like we're planting seeds for later so yeah yeah, yeah so well yeah I'm, I'm just started working on it. oh thank you yeah it was um it was really tough in some ways not as tough as the hunger and the deep in other ways. You know, I didn't have to do any research because I just finished living all this. But, um, you know, so that part was easy, but it was just, uh, you know, there's a lot of writerly craft in it that may not be apparent at first read, mostly about, you know, how to work those reveals and um, how to keep track of all the threads that mm -hmm. come off of every little thing that happens in there. Yeah. I use spreadsheets for everything. I don't, I don't use pen and paper. I, it's all spreadsheets to track timelines and dependencies. How much are you, I mean, you you must be getting a million ideas like running through your head of like, well, I didn't think of it at the time because I wasn't as serious about writing, but you must just run through those years like in your head now all the time. <laughs> I, yeah, it's tough. It's tough because, um, well, for a lot of reasons. And then the interesting thing is, you know, um, Red Widow has been optioned by Fox for a TV series mm. and I'm one of the executive producers. So I get to meet with all these showrunners and writers that were, you know, we, we just finished that process. So it's interesting to sit in these meetings, meeting after meeting, where these writers are deconstructing and recomposing your book, you know, I mean, mm. yeah. 
there are some ways where you can do the book very literally and take it to a TV show. But I think the general consensus is for TV, you just need so much more, you know, it just has to have so many more twists and action and all this kind of stuff. So I'm seeing all these changes that they're suggesting. It's like, wow, why didn't I think of that? Why didn't I think of it? <laughs> you know, right. it's, it's, it's an interesting exercise. It's a gift in a way to get to see how other people would interpret your story. And I'm sure that's influencing book two quite a bit. Yeah. It'll, it'll be interesting to see. Yeah. See, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, uh, I'm a big fan of the book. Uh, and I, uh, I really think, um, you know, uh, just the way that, it, that, that, um, the parallels and reversals work so well between Teresa and, and Lindsay are, are just really well done. And, and I really appreciate that aspect of it. So, um, Alma, I really appreciate your time and, and talking with me about the book. Um, I, uh, any last things that you want to put out there for people? I mean, we've, we've done a lot of talking about all of it, but, um, any, anything else you want to put out there to the world for just, just for writers, the writers out there, uh, you know, I know what it's like, all, all of us, right? We know what it's like, especially when you're just starting out. It's hard to know, uh, you know, you want to be published so bad, right? Mm -hmm. And you're going to read a lot of books that aren't great, <laughs> right? But especially if you're trying to break in, you have to write a tremendous book. Good enough, just good enough is not going to cut it these days in order to get a contract. So, you know, hang in there, but write the, the best. Sometimes that means like craziest, right? Story that you can. I mean, you've really got to just, uh, I remember Jan, Janet Ivanovich said once, I think it was at the Edgars one year, you know, when she writes a book, she doesn't hold anything back. She doesn't save anything for the next book. Just put it all in that book. That's what you got to do. You know, I, I've analyzed a lot of books in order to be able to write a book like Red Widow. And, and that's another thing I would advise. So when you hear of a book that does something really interesting with a narrative, and structure and you know ends up being a groundbreaking book kind of like gone girl was analyze that book and understand what made it work and what the author did in order to make that happen and think about bringing that to the book you're working on excellent advice yep i appreciate that um Alma, this was really cool um i will uh make sure to let you know when we get this up but um you are were awesome and I'm very excited to read uh, Red London and uh, hopefully I'll be able to talk to you uh, after reading that one. So uh, <laughs> thanks for joining us on Postcards from a Dying World and uh, everybody uh, go read um, uh, all of Alma's books and uh, feel free to make comments um, on this video and like and review and all that stuff. And we'll see you again soon. Bye Alma. Thank you so much. Thank you.